Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is my colleague, Caleb Watney, who is a uh, research fellow in technology and innovation. Or is it yep, res- that works. Yeah. Is it resident fellow or is it research fellow? I think it's resident, but I mean, you can just say tech policy fellow that either tech way. Tech policy fellow. Okay. All right. I always wonder some of, some of the, uh, it is resident fellow, which I guess just means that you, you live there. Right? I do, yeah. <laughs> I live yeah. in the Arstreet office. That's where I am. You currently. live in the Arstreet office. Whereas I, I believe, am a senior fellow. Oh. Um, because I guess because I live in Texas and I'm also really old. <laughs> That's kind of what that means. Uh, so, uh, first, welcome. Thank you. Happy uh, to be here. Yeah. And uh, so we wanted to have you on uh, to talk about. So, you know, because you work in the area of technology and innovation, and this is an area that has received renewed importance uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic and fallout thereof. And you, of course, are an idea factory. You're always <laughs> coming up with, with good ideas for things and getting recognition, including, I believe, I believe uh, some of your ideas were recently endorsed by uh, former President Barack Obama, which is exactly what you want in this day and age. So congratulations on that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, if, if only I could get, you know, all of the other uh, both former and current presidents to endorse it, too, then then I'd be golden. That's right. Yes, yes. Uh, um, however many there are. Uh, OK, so maybe. So, so the the let's talk about masks. Let's talk about masks. Start there. Um, one of the issues that has been a, a problem for the United States is we had this, you know, when COVID happened, and there, first there was a back and forth about our masks good, our masks bad, and eventually it was kind of decided, well, we think that actually masks are helpful, and then it turned out that actually we don't we don't have enough masks <laughs> so we need, to, we need to get masks um what what have you been working on with regard to masks and and uh how we deal with those problems for sure yeah so um as you kind of alluded to there's been this uh back and forth and sort of the public health discourse about uh whether or not uh masks work how effective are they and even if they do work, is it worth recommending to the general public that they all wear masks? Uh, I think the initial fear was that this might cause um, a big supply crunch where we already have a limited supply and we are want to um, you know, reserve them for our first responders and, um, and public health workers. Uh, and if you know, we tell everyone to start wearing uh, N95 masks or surgical masks, then maybe there'll be fewer for them. Um, but I think all of this sort of is toying uh, around the the borders of the fact that we just don't have enough masks and it would be much more direct and much more broadly beneficial if we could uh, massively ramp up um, both the supply and the production of uh, masks. Uh, There are a couple different kinds of masks that it's just worth maybe briefly diving into. So 
Um, you have cloth masks, which have now been broadly recommended to um, the public, um, which oftentimes take the form of cut up t-shirts. Um, sometimes they even just, you know, scarves tied around your mouth. Um, there, there's a lot of variety in both the breathability um, and how thick the fabric is or, or how small the, the microweaves are that end up um, impacting uh, both, you know, how much of your coughs and sneezes are actually going through the mask and how much uh, you're breathing in. Um, so there, there's a lot of uh, variability there. And then there's sort of the broad category of medical masks um, and the two biggest, I guess, subdivisions of that. You have surgical masks, which are the um, flexible uh, medical uh, fabric masks that you typically see, you know, surgeons wear. Um, and then you have N95 masks, which are more rigid. Um, and the idea is that they, they make a um, more tight fit around your mouth, your, your mouth and nose to actually um, not have any, you know, air being sucked in from the side. Um, and those uh, are the most rigorously tested and regulated um, and the ones that seem to do um, the most good, but are also the ones that are in the, the sharpest uh, or have, have the, the biggest supply shortage. One of the, just in terms of the messaging from government officials and whatnot, is uh, peculiar, somewhat oddly, they did not start telling people, no, don't, don't wear masks, you know, there's going to be a shortage or whatever, until after they had sold out, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of the weird thing. And I, I happen to know that because um, I, you know, managed to get uh, my hands on some N95 masks. And uh, at the time, I got them just right before they sold out. And at that point, had seen really nothing of anyone saying, uh, no, you know, you shouldn't wear them. You need to reserve them for medical workers or whatever. And so when that did start, it was kind of doubly odd because for one thing, of course, the, the message was not simply, you know, we need to reserve them for medical workers. It, it, was, it was a weird mixed message where they said, we need to reserve the masks for medical workers and also they don't work. <laughs> and I've had a lot of people explain to me about how that was true in all sorts of different contradictory ways. But then it was also, it was also just the case that by the time they were telling this pe pe people this, it was already too late. So they weren't actually, I think, saving any masks for uh, for uh, medical workers because the masks were already gone. Anyway, that's just kind of a, a pet peeve of mine. Uh, no, I then, think you're right. There, yeah. There's also been a lot of, I guess, mixed messages um, around the kinds of benefits that masks could provide. I, I think the two biggest ones that are getting confused um, is the difference between, uh, I guess, source control, which is the idea that if you are sick and you're coughing and sneezing everywhere, you know, uh, your aerosol droplets are, are getting everywhere and infecting others versus how much are masks actually protecting you from inhaling, um, you know, virus particles that might be out in the environment. Um, and it seems like, um, masks uh, are, are much more effective in, in the source control element, but people keep on, I, I think especially initially, we're trying to evaluate them on the, well, how well do they protect you? And so I think there might have been also been uh, mixed messages around that as well. Right. And particularly when you're talking about asymptomatic uh, or pre-symptomatic contagion, uh, even, if, even if you don't know that you're infected you know, or have symptoms, the mask can be really helpful in, in a situation like that if, you know, everyone is wearing them or most everyone is wearing them, I guess. 
Absolutely, yeah, which kind of gets to the, um, I guess, externalities part of this whole uh, argument, which is interesting uh, in the sense that, you know, if I as an individual uh, and wearing a mask around all the time, that's actually like a little bit, you know, costly for me, both in terms of acquiring the mask in the first place, but also it's just kind of, you know, annoying to to be wearing around. Uh, it isn't as nice, you know, DC has actually had really lovely weather, but I, it's, I haven't been able to fully enjoy it because every time I'm going outside, I'm, I'm wearing this mask um, and it's, it's much more stuffy in there. So um, it's, 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 if anything, um, sort of costly to me, but the benefit to all of society is fairly large if I end up being asymptomatic and, you know, and spreading it way less than I otherwise would have um, without a mask. Um, and so I think there, there's pretty compelling reason for the government to try to both uh, increase the supply of masks to make sure that they are broadly accessible to everyone, uh, and maybe even incentivizing people to wear them, uh, you know, either by making them free or I think, you know, in some cities and states, you're starting to see mandatory mask laws or at the very least before you're going into, you know, grocery stores or other heavily trafficked areas. So can we talk a little bit about the production of masks? Because I think this is one of the things that, that you and I have talked about offline before um, is, you know, a month or two ago, there was uh, a lot of talk about the shortage of masks, the shortage of ventilators and other supplies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that one of the areas of debate has been, um, for instance, the Defense Production Act, which I think that President uh, Trump has only invoked the uh, invoke P invoked the Defense <laughs> Production Act um, it, only in the case of GM and Ventec when they were already working as a joint venture to produce ventilators. And I think now to, to force meat packers to continue packing meat. Um, Talk a little bit about the Defense Production Act, what it would do, and then maybe some of your ideas about how we can actually, you know, resource the masks and other supplies um, that we need. For sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's been, you know, this huge supply shortage and this was, you know, pretty widely known, um, you know, even beginning of February, as soon as you start, you know, doing the math on uh, how many people are, are going to be getting this or how widely is the infection going to be spreading, uh, you know, becomes pretty quickly obvious that not only are you going to need masks for, uh, you know, all these first uh, responders and whatnot, but also it would be ideal to get them to the general public. Um, and you've seen some of the, you know, East Asian uh, countries that have been responding very well to this um, crisis, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, you know, they have all been massively ramping up um, production of, of surgical masks in particular and uh, making it a goal to get these, you know, accessible to the public. Um, South Korea and Taiwan in particular have both um, set the production goal of two medical masks per person per week, and then they're distributing them through uh, local pharmacies. Um and other, you know, similar uh, storefronts like that. Um, and so you've seen a lot of varied responses in the U.S. to, you know, well, how do we begin doing this? You have some people fretting and saying, well, it's just impossible. You know, we have outsourced all of our supply chains um, years ago, and so it's, it's really impossible for us to expect that we could um, increase our production now, and this is just part of the dangers of globalization. Uh, you have some people like Rachel Maddow who were saying, like, oh, we should just nationalize um, the entire critical medical supplies industry. Um, a lot of people making allusions to, um, you know, defense production boards of World War II and saying, you know, hey, we were able to uh, come together as a nation and make lots of the supplies we needed at that time. Why can't we do um, the same now? And, uh, 
the Defense Production Act has been kind of the big piece of legislation that a lot of this has been uh, circling around. And that's largely because um, the Defense Production Act was created um, as sort of an outgrowth of some of these uh, military industrial or industrial production efforts that came out of World War II, but it was actually first um, created in response to the Korean War. Um, today, there are still three titles of the Defense Production Act um, that are still, uh, I guess, renewed, have been renewed by Congress. Um, the first is Title I, which is the one that uh, Trump has used most actively. Uh, it's about contract prioritization is is the, the technical term. Uh, basically, the idea is um, the president can order um, private production facilities to either take on contracts or to prioritize contracts related to the production of goods that are, are deemed, you know, in the, the national security interest. Um, there's Title III, uh, which is the one I've been focusing most on, which is sort of a broad set of tools that we can use to incentivize the production of critical medical supplies. So these include things like uh, guaranteed loans and purchase guarantees, and then Title VII is uh, a sort of broad catch-all title that includes a bunch of extraneous things, but also includes the ability to uh, have the president enter into voluntary agreements uh, with private producers to help shield them from uh, antitrust liability. The idea being that if you have a bunch of firms coordinating together in terms of how they you're going to massively ramp up the supply of, of some good, uh, that might normally run afoul of uh, antitrust or, or, or uh, anti-coordination efforts um, that you, you would actually want to incentivize in the short term. Um, and so under Title VII, you can waive some of those things. Um, so Title I has been the one used most frequently, but I, I think it's it's totally missing uh, the point. Uh, unlike you know the production of tanks or aircraft carriers, um, Production knowledge of how to make, uh, especially you know, surgical masks, is is pretty uh, widely spread across the economy. Um, compared to a lot of you know more complex military uh, production, it's it, it's pretty simple. Um, there's also not some of the issues around secrecy that that might exist with military production. Uh, you know, it might be bad if uh, the schematics for our, our certain kinds of you know tanks or or uh, jet fighters get released to the public because you might be able to find vulnerabilities to them. Um, but again, you know, we don't have some of those same uh, concerns around the production of uh, ventilators or masks. Um, and so when you really need a lot of things really, really quickly, uh, there's no better way than sort of utilizing the profit motive and saying, hey, we're going to give out really long, uh, really lucrative contracts um, to produce, you know, millions and millions and billions of masks um, or whatever it is you're trying to produce. Um, uh, and so... That's sort of, I think, the, the basic idea, and we can go into some more of the intuition, but that's a basic overline. So let's talk about timing a little bit. So, you know, like I said, there's, you know, a, a month or two ago, there was a lot of talk about a shortage of ventilators. Uh, I believe at the time that Donald Trump challenged that, said he doesn't think we need as many, and it turns out that maybe we didn't need as many. Um, but, uh, you know, we do have fears of a... I think there's reason to fear a, a, a second wave of infections. And we've been on this lockdown for eight weeks. We should have something to show for it. So in sort of in terms of timing, should we, uh, with ventilators and masks, what should we be doing now? I think a lot of the, the your writing, I think, has uh, is focused to sort of the long term, like preparing for the next pandemic, like what we can do for the next crisis. Should we be 
like if we're focused like right now on what, what we need in the next six months, have we, have we turned the corner on the ventilators? Uh, have we turned the corner on the masks? Should we be looking to the next crisis? Or is this something that is still very much a live issue for this crisis that we need, that we have shortages in you know, key supplies like ventilators and masks? Talk about that for a minute. For sure. Um, so I think on ventilators specifically, we we may have turned the corner, um, but that has more to do with sort of us getting lucky in terms of how the virus, you know, as we've, we've gotten more knowledge about it than it has with, you know, we've, we've actually increased production of ventilators. Um, so it's turned out that uh, we found sort of alternative ways of, of you know, propping up um, sick patients to help their, their airflows breathe better that are way less invasive and actually have better success rates than ventilators. Um, and that's sort of, you still need a few ventilators for maybe the most severe um, can, uh, cases, but we realize we need them at much uh, lower rates than we used to. Um, for masks, it seemed like this is much more of a, a live issue, and we're probably going to need these for a long, long time. Uh, it seems like as part of any broad reopening effort, uh, or basically until we can get a vaccine or some sort of successful treatment, uh, we're going to need to be using a combination of, of masks in addition to wide testing and tracing um, out in the public. And the more effective those masks are, so if we can get the entire public to start using surgical masks rather than cloth masks, um, there's pretty compelling evidence that, uh, you know, surgical masks are just way more effective than cloth masks. And while cloth masks are a good stopgap, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that they're more than that. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, a weird um, picture, you know, when you're seeing uh, South Korea and Taiwan have successfully, you know, massively increased their production. And now everyone there is wearing surgical masks broadly in public. But in the United States, uh, you know, the country that first put a man on the moon, uh, we're still wearing cut up T-shirts around our mouth. <laughs> and, and that seems to be, uh, I think, a really weird uh, mental image um, and, and maybe part of uh, larger forces in, you know, America's ability to still take on big projects. But uh, all the saying, I, I think you could see an elevated period of, you know, another 16 to 18 months or however long it'll take to get the vaccine in which we will still need um, lots and lots of production of medical masks, if not only for first responders, also for the general public, if we can actually get up to those levels. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about supply chains, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because So this is, this is something that has come up recently with a number of different products is, is are there issues with supply chains and particularly international supply chains where the recent pandemic should make us reevaluate how much stuff we want to be making domestically as opposed to getting it from some foreign supplier and it, not just PPE like mass or ventilators, but yep. pharmaceuticals, uh, other stuff. And if, if we do need to have more domestic production, how exactly would we go about doing that? Yeah, that's been kind of the big uh, question you started to see, you know, happen in, in policy circles in, in the last couple of weeks, especially sort of a reevaluation of uh, to what extent, you know, is our current crisis exacerbated by our reliance on international supply chains? Uh, and to what extent, you know, would it be better uh, if if we had onshore more production? I think in the narrow case of this issue, it 
you know, if we had a lot more domestic supply chains, it probably would have helped a little bit, but I think um, probably not as much as some proponents tend to think. I mean, either way, we're, the real reason why there's a shortage is because demand is 20 or 50x what it usually is, um, not just because, you know, we, we are relying on international supply chains. And so even if we made all domestic masks, uh, you know, we would still be facing a serious question of how do we massively increase supply? And that's the case, uh, you know, regardless of where the masks are made. And we still do have a number of U.S. manufacturers, um, you know, so 3M and Prestige Ameritech are the two biggest uh, domestic mask producers, uh, and they've already been, you know, rapidly increasing their supplies. But but the real question for them, and the other thing is we also have other producers who would be interested in going into mask production uh, right now, but they're concerned about making very heavy investments into this area uh, without guarantees that, you know, if they spend the millions of dollars to revamp their supply chains, that they'll actually be um, a buyer for it. So so I think America has the sort of latent industrial capacity um, still around to, to mass produce uh, the masks we need. Uh, and it might be the case that we'd be able to do it easier if we had more domestic uh, supply. But I, I think in either situation, we're still talking about just an absolutely massive ramping up. Uh, and we're still not taking the steps we need um, through purchase guarantees and guaranteed loans to get there. Um, but there, there is the question of the, you know, the future. How do we incentivize um, the kind of supply chain resilience that we need? And I, I do think you could maybe model this um, in economics terms as sort of an, an externality, uh, where each individual firm, you know, the the profit maximizing thing to do uh, might be to really. Uh, have a, a brittle supply chain where you're not having a bunch of extra supply lying around. You have very particular manufacturers that have low labor costs and you can sort of, um, you know, ship your goods all around uh, and then have a very um, low cost um, supply chain. But in the event that there's some sort of disruption, uh, then it hurts more than just you as a firm. And so there, there's a you could either model it as a negative externality for brittleness or perhaps a positive externality being created by uh, supply chain redundancy. Um, and so I know Doug and I have talked a little bit about this offline, but you, you could maybe think about having some sort of um, you know, tax credit um, for firms that are going out of their way um, to build redundancy or build resiliency into their supply chain. Uh, obviously, you'd have to be pretty careful about the construction of that. Um, but I, I think in principle, you can draw a pretty clear economic uh, argument for that. Yeah, I, I will say the need to have a lot of domestic production for masks and or ventilators does not seem particularly compelling to me. Uh, for one thing, it's not actually that hard to make <laughs> masks uh, or even ventilators. I realized that to some people, this seems like a daunting challenge, but it, it's not really. And yeah. to the extent that it is an issue of time, uh, we could, if we wanted to ha have stocked up in advance or stock up in advance for future outbreaks and just have a, a reserve, you know, there are some issues, I think, more with, with pharmaceuticals, for example, which did not end up this time being such a big deal, but potentially could have been, uh, yeah. you know, it could have been, it, it's one thing to have a two month lockdown where people are tweeting about how they can't get enough toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> it might 
have been a little bit worse if it turned out, for example, that we don't have enough painkillers uh, or antidepressants. <laughs> People have to go off their meds or, or other things like that. Um, I I don't know. I don't know if that changes the equation at all, or if if the same sorts of thinking applies there as well. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be there are there are certain areas where it's worth you know making sure that we have you know domestic capability productions, but I don't know how many of those areas there are, and uh, even if there are, I'm not sure if you know necessarily onshoring is the thing that we care about because because what we really care about is resiliency or the ability to get things no matter what kind of crisis strikes. Um, and in many cases, that might be, you know, uh, onshoring or the ability to make them domestically. Um, but sometimes there are going to be, you know, natural or political disasters that happen domestically and having international supply chains will actually help you. Um, so I, I think making sure that the goal is resiliency or redundancy rather than onshoring per se uh, actually helps us respond to a, a wider variety of crises. But I, I want to touch back early on, on something you mentioned, which is stockpiling. Um, because in a lot of these areas, stockpiling would have been the single most efficient way of responding to this. You know, something like, um, you know, having m- much more resilient supplies of N95 masks or surgical masks would have been the single best thing um, to do. You know, you could have had all the onshore production, but it's still going to take time to 20x your your production capacity. But you can exactly have, you know, 20x um, production capacity in storage, and it doesn't cost that much to have a big warehouse. You know, we have the strategic national supply, and, you know, there are more reports coming out now that it seems like we haven't been um, as, uh, I guess, forward-thinking enough in terms of making sure that those supplies were constantly getting restocked. Um, but but that seems to really be the failure point, um, I would say, for this particular crisis, more so than uh, on- offshoring. Yeah, unfortunately, human beings, there's a natural tendency where when you have an event like this, uh, or you have someone, for example, who's very interested in the issue, as former President George Bush apparently was very interested in pandemics, and so there were efforts to kind of ramp up stockpiles and whatnot, but then he went away, and other people kind of forgot about it, and over time the stockpiles got degraded and weren't replenished and other, you know, so on and so forth. And, uh, I would imagine that our response to COVID-19 and attempts at preparedness, they're probably going to be overweighted to <laughs> pandemics, right? Which yeah. actually is not, I mean, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, you know, a, a future pandemics are, are probably quite likely. In fact, there's no reason why the next one couldn't be much, much worse than this one. Yep. But it's hardly the only threat. And so, you know, it would be it, it would be uh, disappointing if it turned out that uh, when the aliens reveal themselves, <laughs> uh, you know, everything we've done has been to prepare for the uh, COVID-20 and the murder hornets, and we haven't done anything here <laughs> for uh, the aliens. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a tendency uh, in a lot of policy responses to sort of uh, be preparing or, 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 or getting ready for, for the last battle or the last war. You know, you saw this a lot with our response to 9-11. 
Um, we are very much focused on what are the exact, you know, policy responses that might have been able to prevent 9-11 um, uh, rather than, you know, how do we prepare for a more robust set of um, possible uh, terrorist attacks, whether they, you know, be cyber or physical. Um, and so, you know, preparing for the next crisis, I think it, it's very good for us to, to use this political momentum to start making the kinds of preparations um, for a pandemic, whether it be natural or, you know, in a more scary situation, some sort of, you know, specifically genetically engineered pandemic, but also for, you know, solar flares and asteroid attacks and or inv- aliens or whatever, you know, there's a whole range of um, catastrophic or existential threats um, that we need a lot more preparation and awareness of. And, and I hope that we can use this political moment as, as sort of a broad, um, you know, bit of energy to help get ready for those things rather than just for the narrow issue of pandemics, even though we do need to do that as well. Um, but but there is also, the, I guess, the separate political question of how do you set up institutions um, that can last for a long time? Because um, you, you mentioned, yeah, George W. Bush seemed to put a lot more uh, readiness and preparation in getting our, our national stockpiles ready for something like this, but those do degrade over time. And especially for, you know, each individual president, as you're trying to find line item budgets um, that you can cut, you know, the odds of a pandemic happening during your specific presidency is quite low. Um, and so, you know, why not cut that and make room for something that's, you know, politically more popular? Um, and so I, I think it's a hard question of, of how do you set up funding arrangements and institutional incentives so that uh, no matter, you know, the the political initiatives of any one president, you know, we still have um, steady funding to be able to create the kind of um, supply and preparation we need. So what other innovation issues do you think are, have been raised by the COVID pandemic and resulting economic and social disruptions? Yeah, I think there's a a couple directions we could go in this. Um, Narrowly on the issue of sort of manufacturing and resiliency, I think I'm going to be curious to see how um, certain advanced manufacturing techniques um, start building in flexibility or redundancy as maybe one of the margins of innovation. So, uh, you know, 3D printing, I I think the, the, the initial promise there was, oh, you know, you could have these 3D printers in everyone's house. And then, you know, no matter what kind of, you know, big warehouse goes up in smoke, you always have the ability to just print the the narrow issue or the, the narrow item that you need. I think a lot of that kind of um, initial promise is sort of waned as people have realized the, the realities technically um, and how difficult that is. But um, I think that there is something to that in the idea that you, you could maybe have sort of combinations of advanced manufacturing machines, like giant, you know, 3D industrial printers and injecting molding and, and all sorts of um, cool advanced manufacturing techniques that are on the horizon. And maybe that, that creates almost a manufacturing platform of sorts where, uh, you know, inventors or, or manufacturers can know, hey, if I design my product within these broad set of specifications, I know that there are factories all over the world that have these very broad advanced manufacturing machines. And so if, if I'm willing to constrain my product design within this, this set of criteria, I can have certainty in knowing that there, there are factories all over the world that can produce the things that I need. Um, so I don't know, a lot of that is maybe a little bit speculative, but um, with how much uncertainty there is around uh, both you know, global political situations, but also uh, climate change and natural disasters. I, I think there's a lot of forces that could sort of incentivize um, redundancy in supply chains. And it'll be interesting to see how technology helps fill that gap as well. Um, 
The other big area where you could think about sort of technological or, or innovation responses to COVID is um, in how people are, are dealing with this socially. Um, so one of the big industries that seems to be getting hit is uh, education. Um, you know, a lot of public universities are going to be seeing their budgets cut. Uh, there's going to be a lot fewer uh, international students that are traveling that tend to provide a lot of the tuition dollars to help these schools survive. And so you might see, um, you know, waves of, of universities um, maybe closing, especially in, in smaller cities. Um, and so how online learning kind of fills that gap will be interesting to see. I, I'm still somewhat skeptical in the sense that I, I think what education is providing is more than just um, you know, the narrow textbook lessons. It, it's also a mix of social interactions and social networking that's difficult to solve just, uh, you know, with an online education portal. But you, you could broadly model this whole, you know, three, four month period or maybe longer of, of social distancing as, as a sort of exogenous shock to um, social norms. And oftentimes we can kind of get stuck in a certain kind of path dependency where we all get used to a particular way of doing something or using a particular kind of technology or social um, system uh, because that's just the way it's always been done. And then if you you have some shock to the system that allows people to experiment with new uh, methods or new ways of doing things, um, you know, maybe you'll, you'll see new methods or, or new technological um, systems uh, being pushed forward faster than they otherwise would have. Uh, and just one system that seems to be developing pretty quickly is um, virtual reality. The, the Oculus Quest is maybe the the newest uh, entry there. And I haven't I haven't tried it personally, but a lot of people seem to be saying that this is really a, a step level different than previous um, virtual reality platforms. So uh, I don't know who knows what we'll see there. All right. Well, my five year old is very interested in virtual reality, uh, so you know he wants that to come as soon as possible. <laughs> Same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, our guest is Caleb Watney. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.